0: of Luke 4 and try to get a little bit of a a grip on what's going on here. So Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, we're going to be reading from the New American Standard version here. If you don't have a copy of a Bible with you, or there should be one in the back of the pew there for you to open up, find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke is where we're at, and then find chapter 4. So Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 13, if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. Luke 4, verse 1, God's word says this, "'Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days.' And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall, be, shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your written word. We thank you for the many men who have gone before us to bring what we have here today. As I thought about this past week and being able to see a Tyndale New Testament, one of only five copies known in existence in the entire world, Lord, I thank you for those men. I thank you for their labors and their persecution and and ultimately, Lord, some of them gave their lives so that we could have this treasure in your word here today. We are grateful to them. We are grateful to you for providing it for us. Lord, help, it, help us to be instructed today. Help us to walk in newness of our understanding of how glorious you truly are. Lord, we are so grateful and thankful to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Brownie Point moment. Well, recently uh, this week, a survey was released by Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research in conjunction. And it was called The State of Theology, and you can actually go on stateoftheology.com and find this, uh, this uh, graphic that they have compiled, revealing the fact that we are living in what Ligonier Ministries now calls the New Dark Age, a time where our culture today is blatantly anti-theological. We are allergic to doctrine. And sadly, it's not true of just the population as a whole, but it's also true in a large part, in a large sense, of the church as well. Instead of running the race in such a way that we should win the prize, which we're called to do, most of uh, self-identified Christians just are content to be sitting on the sidelines wearing the team jersey. But the study was over uh, a course of a couple of months with 3,000 adults of various Uh, economic backgrounds, genders, ethnicity, education, and regions across the United States, and it revealed some startling facts about how Americans as a whole viewed God, sin, and the Bible. Listen to some of these statistics. When asked if God was a perfect being and could not make a mistake, only 67% agreed with that. And if you do the math, 37% said God makes mistakes. When asked that since everyone sins, and really people are by nature good, 67% of those people agreed with that statement. Again, the depravity of mankind is one of the most intellectually resisted doctrines of the Bible, but it is the most empirically verifiable. If you watch the news at all, and you see people cutting heads off of other people, you see kids going into school shooting other kids, there's no doubt that mankind is depraved and sinful. When asked if God has authority over human beings since he created them, only 61% could affirm that. When asked if sex outside of marriage was a sin, only 31% agreed with that statement. When asked if the Bible has the authority to tell us what to do, 49% agreed. When asked if Jesus is fully God and has a divine nature and fully man and has a human nature, only 60% of the people could affirm that. 40% disagreed. And lastly, when asked if there are many ways to get to heaven, 45% of Americans surveyed said yes. Sadly, among those who Identify themselves as an evangelical Protestant Christian, 11 percent said, yes, there's many ways to heaven beside Jesus Christ." But why is there such this state of theological illiteracy in the United States when the Bible is still the number one bestseller of all times? Why is this? Well, I would argue that Americans, by and large, they revere the Bible, but they don't actually read it. They hold it in high esteem. They'll put it on their coffee table for display, but that's as far as it goes. And an even sadder realization is that in the church, of all places that the scriptures should be read and taught and exposited, it's being supplanted by gimmicks instead of the gospel. Entertainment has replaced exposition. Programs have replaced proclamation. And self-help is the rule of the day rather than self-denial. The pastor is seen as an entertaining speaker, and I had a lady tell me that one time. I'm coming to this church because the pastor is an entertaining speaker. And his latest travels and his antics and stories have ultimately replaced Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is a spiritual famine in the land. And because of all that, at the end of the day, we end up not with the God of the scriptures, but we end up with a God of our own making. And so it behooves us to dig into the scriptures, to read it, to study it, to highlight it, to underline, to link, to meditate and memorize on, because it is how we come to truly know God. Charles Spurgeon once said, the deeper you dig into scripture, the more you find that it is a great abyss of truth. But that doesn't mean that sometimes we wrestle with certain texts our finite man, minds here are trying to grasp the infinite mind of God. And so it is with our text today. There's this great abyss of truth here. And I'm not going to belabor a lot of doctrine or go back into uh, Steve's sermon last week because I think it's, it stands on its own. It was very good. I, I, I applauded him for that. But I want to get into this text because it's, it's a little difficult. It's a little weighty. So what we're trying to understand here is that how is it that Jesus Christ as being fully God and fully man could be tempted by the arch enemy of God, Satan himself, right? We talked about this term before in the hypostatic union of Christ or the two natures of Christ. That Jesus Christ has two complete natures, one human and one divine, but they are united in the one person in the God-man. Jesus isn't bipolar, he doesn't operate in modes or put masks on to switch who he is at the time, but he's one person with two complete natures. And if that is true, if we affirm that, if that indeed is factual, how is it that he could be remotely tempted? To what end? And why would he even need to be tempted? Did Jesus Jesus possess peccability or impeccability? Non pecare non passe non-pacare versus non-passe pacare is what Augustine called it, meaning that was it even possible for him to sin? And we're going to cover those terms later and define those here for you, but my goal is that over the next two weeks as we look at this text, that we start to look at the big picture of the text first and answer those questions and more, and then dig down deeper into the in individual temptations of, of Satan in the following week. But we've got to set the stage here. Uh, if you will, between the one in whom the Father is well-pleased and the one who is a liar and a father of lies. We've got this ultimate epic battle here between all that is uniquely good and righteous and pure in the person of Jesus Christ and the serpent of old, the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Now, we've just come off the baptism of Christ in which the voice from heaven affirmed You are my beloved son. We've just come through the genealogy where Luke really sets up for us the fact that Jesus was ultimately the son of God. We saw that in verse 38. That's how he ended. And then we've noted that Jesus being the son of God is a theme that is predominantly in Luke's gospel. From the angel's announcement to Mary, uh, to Jesus' teaching in the temple back in Luke 2, this is without question the son of God. But as we start to move through our text today, we're going to see the satanic temptation that questions that very fact with, if you are the Son of God. He wants to incite doubt and distrust into the mind of Christ, not too much unlike the doubt that has, he had tried to place in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 3. But this is ultimately the last step for Jesus in his preparation before his public ministry. And so if we get to our text in Luke 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Now, as we have established in the past, any time that anyone has been full of the Spirit, they're about to do something or say something incredible for God. And this is a widely used phrase by Luke to be full of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've seen it in John the Baptist, who would be filled with the Spirit before his birth. Elizabeth, when John leaped in the womb, when Mary came over for a visit, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Zacharias were all said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you continue reading through Luke and on into Acts, you're going to continually see groups of people and individual believers alike be filled with the Holy Spirit. The 120 believers at Pentecost, the seven chosen to serve the early church, Stephen, Barnabas, Paul, Paul, Peter will all be described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is definitely a Lucan motif. But Jesus here is full of the Holy Spirit, meaning that he was completely saturated or lacking nothing in terms of his communion with the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word here is pleres, which in this context means that it is an ongoing condition. It refers to exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit that is under the lordship of the Spirit. The same Greek family of words is actually used to describe a condition that you and I should exhibit. In Ephesians 5.18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I believe the word there is pleiros, but it came, comes from the same Greek family. Don't be controlled by the external pleasure of wine, for that is dissipation or a wasting away or a spreading out of your life. If you think about yourself being in a house, a warm house with the fire going and everything like that, and somebody opens up that door, all that heat starts rushing outside, right? It starts to dissipate. It goes into non-existence and spreads out into the atmosphere, And pretty soon, your house is cold. It does you no good, right? And that is what Paul is comparing wine and alcohol to. It's a wasting away. It's of no benefit. But we are to keep continually being filled with the Spirit. It's not talking about ecstatic experiences or emotionally driven highs here. It's not talking about going unconscious at some Holy Ghost revival, It's not a second blessing experience subsequent to the salvation event. But it is a continual, day-by-day, moment-by-moment submission to being under the authority and control of the Holy Spirit. It's sort of like the wind in the sail of a sailboat, and I'm sure some ears are picking up. But in order for that boat to be moved through the water... That sail has to be filled with air, right? And for it to continually be moved across the water, it has to continually be filled with air to move. It's saying, in, in context of being filled with the Spirit for us, it is saying, Lord willing, I will do this or that. It's saying, not my will, but your will be done. It's a dying to self, a denying of self, and taking up the cross. It's living corum Deo, which is a Latin word for living before the face of God. God continually, right here. And this is exactly how our Lord Jesus Christ is living in Acts chapter 4. Jesus was living his life by being filled with and constantly controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then it tells us that he returned from the Jordan, which connects us to the baptism event from Luke 3.3. 3. But then it says this remarkable thing here in our text, and that he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. If we look at the account from Mark 1.12, the language here for this same text, this same time, is a little stronger, and it says that the Spirit impelled him, meaning that it drove him on, or it spurred him on into the wilderness. So this wasn't some accident that Jesus was going to run into Satan. This wasn't because he got lost on his way home to Galilee or that he was trying to buy some time before starting his public ministry. He wasn't being passively dragged out by Satan for a showdown. But it's actually that the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and Mark adds that Jesus was among the wild beasts, emphasizing his isolation from the rest of humanity. He was alone in terms of human relationships. But what is understood here is that he was in a barren, desolate era, area of Judea. But the fact remains that this was an intentional event in the life of Jesus. You would think that Jesus would be baptized, proclaim the Son of God and confirmed by the Holy Spirit with the resting of the Holy Spirit on him like a dove, affirmed by John the Baptist, that's him, and this was indeed the long way to Messiah, and then boom, off to ministry. But this was something that had to be done. As we said a few weeks ago, if Jesus had just merely been born of the flesh, and then all he needed to, was to sacrifice his perfect flesh as the Lamb of God, All of that could have easily been accomplished when Herod slew all the male children that were under two years of age. But there's more to it than that. And note that verse 2 says that it was for 40 days that he was being tempted by the devil. It wasn't just three temptations that we have here that we see in verses 3 through 13. This was a continual, ongoing temptation. It was a battle. It was 40 days of fiery darts from the evil one. So what's going on here? Why this temptation in the wilderness by Satan? Well, some theologians, they look at this text by way of analogy to the Old Testament. And I think it all have a little bit of legitimacy, but one such comparison is between that of Moses and Jesus. A.W. Pink compares the temptation of Christ to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 34 by saying, In Exodus 34... It was Moses, here it is Christ. There, it's Moses on the mount, here it's Christ in the wilderness. There, it was Moses favored with a glorious revelation from God, and here it is Christ tempted by the devil. There, it was Moses receiving the law at the mouth of Jehovah. Here, it is Christ being assailed by the devil to repudiate that law. We scarcely know which is the greater wonder of the two that a sinful man was raised to such a height of honor as to spend a season in the presence of the great Jehovah, or that the Lord of glory would stoop down so low as to be for weeks with the foul fiend. Another comparison is that of Israel and Jesus, while God's son Israel, and that's used in Exodus 4, I believe. God calls Israel his son. When they failed uh, their test in the wilderness, Jesus, the true son, he remains obedient and he emerges victorious. Jesus' 40 days are analogous to the wandering of Israel for 40 years. And when Jesus cites three Old Testament passages that we shall see next week, they are all relate specifically to Israel's failure in the wilderness. But I think the most comparison, the most convincing comparison is between that of Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. Because I think it's more in line with the overall thrust of the Bible in terms of redemption history. The Bible is a book of redemption. Now, you might say, where do you get this concept of the second Adam? It comes from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47. It says, So also it is written, The first man, Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. So Paul uses this concept of the first Adam and the last Adam. But how in the world does that compare into Luke 4 here? The first Adam is born sinless, just as Jesus was, but that's about where the similarities stop. Adam was a created being, Jesus was not. But consider the fact that Adam was in a vast paradise. He was perfectly content and satisfied with food. He had every good thing in paradise to eat from, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Jesus is in a desolate Judean wilderness, and he's hungry with nothing to eat. Adam had the companionship and mutual support of Eve. Jesus is alone in terms of his earthly relationships. Adam lived in a sinless world and an environment, whereas Jesus was in a sinful world. But I think Paul in Romans 5 really lays out the importance of this comparison for us. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Verse 14 of Romans 5 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. That's Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, the one act of righteousness, that is Christ's death, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as though the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So what is Paul saying to us here in relation to Luke chapter 4 that we're in? He's saying is that where Adam was born sinless and Adam had every good thing available to him in terms of physical nourishment and sustenance, and he even wandered around paradise, Adam failed in being obedient to God. But Jesus, who was born sinless, depended upon the most important sustenance of all, And that is in his spiritual sustenance of the Holy Spirit. He did not and could not fail, and he was obedient to God. And as a result, he is able to be a faithful high priest and provided a way for you and I to have peace with God. Whereas Adam brings all of humanity down into damnation through sin, Jesus Christ lifts sinners up through his righteousness. Hebrews 4.15 It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but the one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so this really begs the question, how can we account for the reality of genuine temptation and also hold to the hypostatic union of Christ if he was truly impeccable and unable to sin? Impeccable means simply that he's unable to sin. Augustine, I said, called it the passe non pecare versus non passe pecare. He dealt with this. It's a legitimate issue. How can we say that Christ could not have sinned and also maintain that he was genuinely tempted? How do we reconcile this? So what we're really trying to deal with here is on the humanity of Jesus Christ because from the outset we've got to lay down this foundation. We have to maintain that the humanity of Jesus was tempted in such a way that his deity could not even possibly be. We have to consider James 1.13, that God cannot be tempted by evil. But Jesus was, in fact, tempted by evil because we just read in Hebrews 4, tempted as we are, yet without sin. We're kind of faced with a dilemma here. It seems as though Scripture is contradictory and trying to reconcile these tensions, but the thought pattern is this, and this is from Wayne Grudem. Okay, number one, Jesus was tempted. Number two, Jesus was fully man. Number three, Jesus was fully God, and number four, God cannot be tempted. Those are all true, but how do we reconcile all that? How can we affirm all four of those? It's akin to what Paul says in Colossians two two about the mystery of Christ, God incarnate. In the man, Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. But we have to affirm and accept that this temptation is as it pertains to Jesus' humanity. Based on James 1.13, we have to. We're cornered. We have nowhere else to go. But just because Jesus was tempted doesn't necessarily mean that he even had the ability to sin because of his intrinsic unity with the Father. William G.T. Shedd offered this analogy. He said, Consequently, what might be done by the human nature, if alone and by itself, cannot be done by it in its union with omnipotent holiness. An iron wire by itself can be bent and broken in a man's hand. But when the wire is welded onto the iron bar, it can no longer be so bent and broken. A mere man can be overcome by temptation, but a God-man... Cannot be, end quote. So how can we say that Jesus was truly tempted, but without sin? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been tempted and not sinned? Have you ever had temptation come upon you, yet you turned away and rejected it? As a Christian, I hope that you've answered yes, okay? But have you ever been genuinely tempted to lie or to steal or to commit adultery on anything else and took that thought captive and didn't follow through with it. I certainly hope so. But isn't it marvelous that our sinless Savior, he was assaulted and barraged with temptations for 40 days, yet he fought and fought and every time he never ever surrendered, never gave in, and ultimately in the end he became victorious. Isn't it wonderful that he was in such agony and that he would pray three times and sweat blood drops of blood because he was in that agony that he would press on and he would obey the father to be sure the struggle was intense. So intense that Luke 22 tells us that while he was in the garden of Gethsemane, when he struggled in that victory for it, it would drop him to his knees. How many times do we do the same? How many times have you been literally driven to your knees in prayer because of temptation, because of something you're struggling with, because of some situation that's going on? How many times do we not just try to just hunker down and get along in our own strength? Here comes a stink bug. How many times do we just bear down and do it? And if we're real honest this morning, men, we're the worst ones. Our pride gets in our way for us to be able to wave the white flag and say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. Lord, this struggle is too much for me to bear. I need your help. Or even to call a fellow brother in the Lord and just say, I need help, I need prayer. In our minds, as men, it seems to reveal weakness. And really what that is, is the sin of pride. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So, what are the tools that are available for you and I to overcome temptation and sin? It's the same ones that were available to Jesus. And Bruce Ware is helpful to me in his his book, The Man, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, I believe is the title. Number one, the the tools that we have is prayer. Jesus had access to the Father through continual, fervent prayer. Prayer is a whole other sermon on its own. But let me give you some scriptures that I think uh, one of the most powerful scriptures in regards to prayer. And it comes from James chapter 4, in verse... Or verse 1, it says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here's the key. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that it may be spent on your pleasures. Now, that is a powerful, powerful scripture in that it reveals motives as well here, but the key was in verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Our true joy, our true fulfillment in this life, our true pleasure in this world comes from only one source, and that's God. We need to start recognizing the fact that there is nothing in this world that there is going to bring lasting happiness. There is nothing that's going to bring lasting and enduring satisfaction. There is nothing that is going to satisfy your soul's greatest longings than our relationship with the living God. Not sex, not wine, not possession, not any earthly thing. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. And in regards to the temptation itself, Jesus said in Mark 14, 38, He told us, keep watch and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to be on alert as to when temptations come. Is it when you're all alone? Is it at night when everyone's asleep? Is it when you're with a certain person or a certain friend that you are tempted to do evil and fall into sin? We are to make no provision for the flesh, but we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you sin mostly at night, go to bed early. If your friends cause you to stumble, find new friends. Bad company corrupts good character and then pray that you won't come into that temptation. The second thing that Jesus had, we had prayer. Number two, the Word of God. We're going to dive into this a little more next week, but we're going to see that of all the Scripture-saturated people in the New Testament, none are going to be able to know know how to use it and use it in its actual context other than Jesus Christ, right? He is the best source of using Scripture, In fact, next week we're going to see how Satan, even Satan himself, tries to malign Scripture. But Jesus Christ sets him straight. But we have the Word of God. We have access to more Bible commentaries, more Bible helps, more Bible versions than any other ethnic group in the history of the world. But we don't use it. We don't read it, and we don't memorize it. Think about Psalm 1 being the first psalm of the Song Book of Israel, and how it pointed to Jesus Christ. He says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which will yield its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers." So, he had prayer, he had the Word of God, and number three, he had the Holy Spirit. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a child of the light, when you are converted and regenerated, you have the Holy Spirit of promise within you. And it's the same Holy Spirit that indwelled Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says, in Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in with him in the Holy Spirit, a promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You are God's possession for his glory. And after you heard the gospel, right, somebody told you the gospel, you heard it, Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And you believe the gospel, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing event that happens like the Wesleyan Holiness group uh, affirms. It's not something that you can throw around like some sort of Star Wars uh, sideshow like you see in the Pentecostal church. I've seen a video where a guy took off his suit coat and people are coming across the stage and he's hitting them with his coat. Supposedly that the Holy Spirit is entering those people because of his suit coat. That's crazy. That is not in Scripture. But the Holy Spirit is given to you when you believe the gospel and now you have been pledged that you are now God's own possession. But a lot of time when we get into situations and we struggle with sin or conflict, what do we day? What do we say? We say if Jesus here it would be better. If only Jesus would come, right? But Jesus said in John 16:7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Helper here is the Holy Spirit. And he said it's better that he goes away and he sends the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within you. It's going to convict you of sin. It's going to show you that you need the Savior and then empower you to overcome sin and temptation. But even though we have an abundance of resources available to us to overcome temptation, the question lies in the fact of, do we use them? Fervent prayer isn't just going to come magically. Bible intake and having your mind saturated on the Word of God doesn't happen by osmosis. Trusting in the Holy Spirit when you're tempted isn't a given. It takes discipline. It takes commitment. Most of us are more like spiritual couch potatoes than we are getting up and actively walking with the Lord. 1 Timothy 4.7 says that we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. But if that's you this morning, and if you're sitting there and saying to yourself, I don't pray enough, I don't read and treasure God's word enough, I don't depend upon the Holy Spirit enough, and I think that I've got to be true of really, it has to be true of everyone in this room when we say these things, I'm asking you this morning to repent. I'm asking you to seek the grace of God and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, for He will lift you up. There's a song that we sing, and it says, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thy all in all. Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Let's pray. Father, we just beg this morning that you forgive us for doubting you. For not depending upon you, for not casting our burdens upon you, because we know that you care for us. Your word tells us so. Lord, help us to be watchful. Help us to be a people of prayer so that we will not fall in temptation. Lord, not just to shame us, so that we would be ashamed of such a sin, Lord. but I surely hope we would, Lord, but help us to watch and not fall in temptation so that we do not malign the name of Jesus Christ. Give us strength, Lord, to walk as we ought to. Help us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. God, this is a wicked world that we live in. It is assaulting us in our senses day by day and moment by moment. Help us to reject that, Lord, and help us to live quorum Deo with the face of God before us. We can only overcome sin and temptation because of the power of the Holy Spirit which you have given to us, Lord. We are so grateful for that. So as we leave here this morning, Lord, as we go through our week, let us depend upon you and not on any earthly thing to deliver us. Father, we just pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's um, get ready to go downstairs and um, have a time of fellowship and some food.